Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome Ann Mosley to our Lincoln Log podcast. Ann is the new Director of Engagement and Curator for the Sangamon Experience and Acting Director of the Center for Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois Springfield. She previously worked as Director and Curator of the Lincoln Heritage Museum at Lincoln College in Lincoln, Illinois. And thank you for joining the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I'm a strong follower of all the podcasts and videos, and you've had some great scholars on here. I'm very honored to, to be a part of the program. We're happy to have you too. Well, let's, let's start off, I guess, with your exciting new position um, and the exciting new, new center, the Center for Lincoln Studies and the Sangamon Experience. So could you tell us more about that and what the mission is for each of those programs? Well, I started in April, and um, the mission statement has been uh, clear for both uh, because uh, with higher education, you have to submit um, a proposal to start a, a new project um, and a new department. Um, and so the Center for Lincoln Studies um, is basically furthering the mission of the University of Illinois at Springfield by promoting the study of Lincoln, Springfield, and the state of Illinois, uh, and the nation. Uh, through education, research, outreach, uh, and the center provides faculty, scholars, and the public with opportunities to understand the life and times of the 16th president. Um, so it, it's what's really cool about that mission is it focuses not on just the past, but it talks about how uh, Lincoln applies to us today. Um, right. And that's what the center is. Uh, Sangamon Experience, um, follows a local history mission, uh, which is to provide a perspective of history of the Sangamon region. So it's a section of Illinois, uh, for those who are not familiar with the state, uh, it's the centerpiece, uh, or in the Lincoln world, we call it the wig belt. Um, and it's through presentation of a variety of exhibits, activities, um, and we work with a variety of different communities uh, throughout the Sangamon region. So it's not just Sangamon, Illinois, but it's a number of different uh, counties throughout the centerpiece. And we work um, uh, strictly with uh, community organizations and groups, and so it's uniting all of them together. So is it fair to say then the Sangamon experience is, is regional or local history-based, whereas the Center for Lincoln Studies, do you intend to have really a national reach, um, a national influence, and a national focus as well? Yes, okay. yes. Wonderful. Um, and I actually use uh, the Sangamon experience as kind of a, a public history lab. Uh, so the students at UIS get a unique opportunity to try out new and innovative ways to reach the public. Um, through exhibits, through scholarship, um, and different mediums as well, uh, which particularly during this uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, has become very useful because it allows us uh, to try out new ways to reach the public and meet the needs uh, of them while they're still kind of hesitant to actually go out to museums. Uh, so I'm excited to, 
to see what our students will come up with, but also to try out new uh, innovative ways to share local history. Right. Well, you know, this is essentially a startup. Um, so it obviously presents challenges and opportunities too. What appealed to you about leading the Center, Center for Lincoln Studies as a startup? Um, what appealed to me was the fact that it was a startup, uh, that it was a clean slate. Um, it allowed uh, a variety of different opportunities uh, to be had. And the fact that they pretty much just gave me the project and said, we want you to develop this in the best way that you know how right. um, to reach our students, to reach a diverse community, um, but also to engage people within our community. And that to me was just wonderful because I love working with the community. I spent a lot of time going out to different areas uh, within Sangamon County, and uh, we actually get an opportunity to to share that uh, with the rest of the state of Illinois. Okay. So, so what are your strategic uh, priorities for the center and and, and its future? What, where do you hope to see it go from here? Well, specifically with the center, um, what I'm hoping to do is uh, encourage scholarship. Uh, within the center, which is what most um, Lincoln Studies departments do already. But what I'm hoping to do is create a collaborative environment. Um, I want it to be relaxed. I want it to be a place where scholars feel like they can come and um, share information and not feel like they have to compete against each other to learn more about Lincoln and improve the scholarship level of our students. Um, so the way that the center is laid out is we actually have a reference room that's built to be a collaborative space. Um, it's comfortable for people to be able to go in um, and work as a group. Um, and you can even um, have scholars come in via Zoom, Skype, um, any type of technological way um, they can be reached. Um, they can work within the group within the center. Awesome. That's and in addition to that, uh, we have a big scholar within residence, uh, Dr. Michael Burlingame, who has won the Lincoln Prize uh, for his work on Abraham Lincoln. And he is a huge supporter of the center and uh, he provides a number of scholarship uh, connections as well. Uh, but he also, the way that he studies Abraham Lincoln really embodies what the center is all about, which is getting to know Lincoln on a deeper level. Um, we also have a new scholar in residence, uh, Dr. Graham Peck, um, who plays a key role in the academic side of the center by developing uh, teacher-led seminars and working with our students as well. Uh, so I think the center is, is supposed to be a place where we can discover Lincoln personally um, but also learn about his character. And I think that's going to be the number one focus moving forward because character is definitely something that is needed uh, in our nation at the moment. Um, and we can always draw on Lincoln for that. Well, that's wonderful. And of course, you mentioned Professor Burlingham, who um, was an early guest on this podcast. And, um, you know, I, as I said then, and I think many or perhaps even most or all Lincoln scholars would agree, his, his two-volume biography is the best of the modern era, um, if not of all time, of Abraham Lincoln. So it's quite a um, feather in the cap of the center to have him help help lead it as well. Yeah. Be a part of it. 
Um, so yeah, great opportunities, um, wonderful startup, but obviously, um, unfortunately, universities everywhere are facing challenges. Um, the Illinois state government and the University of Illinois system is struggling financially, and we have to think that the pandemic isn't gonna help that. I know um, here, for instance, in Indiana, colleges across the board are seeing cuts. Did you have any reservations about going from a private university to a state entity that's arguably gonna have some real difficult times? And, and how do you see the center and the Sangamon experience navigating through this period of un uncertainty? Well, in Illinois, we're uh, no stranger to um, having financial issues uh, within uh, the university system, but also in non-for-profits. Um, throughout uh, public history studies, it is well known that professors push for you to go into non-for-profit sectors because it's safer, uh, there is a lot more room for grants, endowments, but sadly that's not really the case. Um, both private and for-profit institutions have financial struggles. Right. Um, they both have their issues in regards to priorities um, and also really it's the important thing is to look at um, when looking at a university for an occupation is retention and the number of students that will attend. Um, and I have been very fortunate to work for two colleges and universities uh, that have succeeded in that. Uh, they provide an environment for students that they can't really get anywhere else. And they are very supportive and they have a team structure uh, that supports every aspect of the college and university. And I've had nothing but support from both. Um, when it comes down to finances, uh, I've always been taught where there are little funds comes great creativity. Mm. Uh, and so in both positions that I have held, uh, I've always been conscientious of funding and how to receive it, but also learn how to work within my, my own means uh, within the department. And so at the Lincoln Heritage Museum, we got very creative. We were able to create programmings uh, with little funding. I believe we had a summer program that we repeated multiple times and it only cost us about $60 to go. put on. Uh, and we had a large number of children that would show up every weekend for our events. Um, and so you don't always have to have the biggest budget uh, to be successful. You can always have a smaller budget and develop some creativity and create the largest attendance numbers that you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very fortunate at UIS um, to have a university that has a strong foundation, a strong endowment for the Sangamon experience, but also amazing donors who have stepped forward, who believe in the mission. Um, they believe that local history is important for the Sangamon experience. But then we also have donors who feel like the legacy of Lincoln here in Illinois is strong and we need to have a university uh, to promote the future of Lincoln scholarship in young students and we've been very blessed with that. Um, in addition, our advancement team is amazing. They are very supportive. Uh, they've 
come out and asked, you know, what can we do to help you? How can we further the mission? Um, are there any individuals that you feel like we need to highlight? Uh, are there any scholars that you would like us to showcase on our pages and our stories? Um, and it's, it's been a wonderful place to work. Um, and it's been interesting because I started working from home uh, when I started at UIS. Oh, right, right. Um, but I'm, I graduated from UIS in 2011, and I've always seen the U of I system as a place for Lincoln Scholars. Um, you have John Randall, you have Dr. Wayne Temple, mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, Colm Davis, who came through, who was not just a scholar, but he also taught at UIS when it was Sangamon State. Um, and he led the papers of Abraham Lincoln, which I think is the greatest collection of Lincoln manuscripts here in Illinois. Uh, and it's, it's very valuable to the work that I do and uh, to many Lincoln scholars. That's wonderful. And icing on the cake is it just continues That's because right. we have Burlingame and Peck. Um, so I, I really don't get concerned about the numbers, but Josh, I mean, you've seen me at ALA events. Uh, I tend to get overly excited about <laughs> pretty much anything that I work on. Um, and as a historian, you have to be hopeful because um, you're in it because you love what you do. Right. Um, you don't do it for the big financial numbers. You do it because you love the scholarship. You are invested in what you research. And really what makes you the most excited is when people read your work and they learn something from it. Um, and it, it really gets me excited when I meet my favorite Lincoln scholar or favorite scholar. Right. Um, so I think that um, non-for-profits have their place. Um, and they are amazing institutions, but also for-profits do as well. It's just what your administration decides to focus and invest in. Um, and it, if they invest in their workers, it's going to show by amazing work um, and engaging programming. Well, well, your enthusiasm and excitement for, for, for Lincoln and history really does come through. Um, but sometimes I wonder for those that... Uh, you know, are new to history or don't share quite the deep passion, um, how do we excite them about Lincoln and history? Um, particularly somebody that seems to have been written about and dissected so often, um, how can the center continue to attract new students and, and boosters and supporters? Well, when I went through the program, uh, which, I mean, we're roughly the same age, so it's, it's been a while since we were in college, um, but the students that tend to succeed and get excited about what they do. They've had professors that have had a impact on their lives. Um, and I think any college, uh, if you have an investment in your faculty, they are going to keep those students. I remember going through school and there was a particular professor that uh, students would take all of their classes. So in a sense, they would get that professor's degree. <laughs> Uh, so we used to joke that we'd get the McGregor degree when the McGregors worked at UIS. Um, so uh, in order to retain students, really you have to give them opportunities they can't get anywhere else, whether that be um, GA positions that pay for their education, 
internships that they can add to their resume and uh, work vita. That to me was very important going through college because most jobs were asking for five years plus experience. Um, and how are you supposed to get that and maintain a living at the same time? Right. Uh, and that's why paid internships are very important. Um, also providing them one-on-one -on -one time with scholars, with people that they idolize in their field, um, giving them the opportunity to meet them just talk with them, to get to know them. Uh, and those people, I think, will boost their spirits into thinking that, yes, I can do this. Yes, I'm excited about it. And here is a path that I can take to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what students really need right now, because there is a lot of uncertainty uh, in the history world. Right. We're living in an age where you have to... Um, as a historian, you have to speak up because there are so many facts that are getting misrepresented. Um, and so I, I see historians becoming a vital piece of American um, mass media because we're going to need fact checkers and historians have to step up and be a part of that, um, especially this year. Um, but I mean, that, that's always needed, always. This center obviously is, in effect, dedicated to one person. Um, as the director or acting director current right now, do you feel like you have to have a sense of a personal kinship with that individual to, to really do the role well? Yes, a hundred percent. You have to like them, but you also have to disagree with them at times. It's almost like having a friend. Right. Um, so I've studied Lincoln pretty much my whole life. There have been times I've disliked him. There have been times where I get sick of people talking about him over the years. Um, that was when I was younger. Uh, <laughs> there have been times where I told my dad, who is also a Lincoln historian, I'm just gonna study Stephen Douglas. You know, I'm just not even gonna <laughs> go and study Lincoln. Um, but there are times where you read his words and he, it just clicks. He is so good at the at writing what he feels and what he believes in, um, and he's able to speak in a language that is understandable. Um, he is not an ivory tower type um, individual, right. and it's very hard to find those people in history that are genuine, that speak their mind, but they also realize that they have shortcomings. And I think that's what admires me about uh, Abraham Lincoln is the fact that he's a human being. Right. Um, and so I think in order to study Lincoln, you have to um, do what Burlingame pretty much has done throughout his career, which is get to know him on a personal level and, you know, become a, a friend of his mm -hmm. in an essence, um, like the good and the bad of him. Uh, but also showcase both, uh, because that's what makes Lincoln uh, the most studied individual and uh, the most called upon individual for, for times of crisis, but also in times of, you know, hope and right. um, uh, he's, a, he's a rallier at times too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think in order to work in a Lincoln institution, Truman, FDR, 
um, Theodore Roosevelt, you have to have a passion for the person. Right. Uh, you really do. Because how else are you going to share him or her uh, with the rest of the world? How are you supposed to get people excited about it? You right. have to be excited about it too. Well, you mentioned your father's in, in, into Lincoln, so maybe that answers the question, but how did you really begin your love affair with Lincoln and get into this line of work? <laughs> it's a really funny story. Uh, so my dad, uh, his first history job was working as a editor for the Lincoln Legal Papers, which is now the Papers of Abraham Lincoln at the Presidential Library here in Springfield. Mm -hmm. um, but he was there in the early days. Uh, so in the 90s, uh, he was working in the basement of the old state capitol okay. as an editor. And he was working with Cullum Davis and a number of great Lincoln scholars. Um, and back then, that's where the Illinois um, Historical Society had their collection okay. um, before we had all the, the big institutions we see today. And I would spend a lot of time uh, at the old state capitol in the basement. And at the time when you did site interpretation, you would pick up an artifact and you would tell a story. It's called the thing tour. Um, and Sandy Temple, uh, Dr. Wayne Temple's wife was in charge of the site interpreters. And I was the mischievous six-year-old who would take historic items that they would tell the stories and I would hide them. Oh my. <laughs> so when the interpreters went through to pick up their item, they couldn't find it. Um, so I would store them in like cabinets or under desks. I mean, I was six, so I wasn't very tall. I couldn't hide them in, in big places. Right. And so Sandy would catch me and she would take me down to her office. And usually Doc would walk over from the Margaret Cross Norton building where the State Archives is. And he would eat his lunch with Sandy in her office. Well, Doc sat me down and he told me a story about Tad Lincoln and his mischievous uh, adventures in the White House. Um, <laughs> and that got me hooked. Oh, so really cool. it was Tad Lincoln that, that uh, got you in. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, and the people that surrounded him. I really liked the friendships that Lincoln developed uh -huh. um, and the people that influenced him and how he influenced others. Um, and that still is an interest of mine today. Uh, and the way Lincoln treated people, that to me was, that was golden. Right. Well, we mentioned at the top of the show, you, you previously worked with the Lincoln Heritage Museum. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience there and what that museum and, uh, has to offer? I have a special place in my heart for that museum. Mm. It gave me my first museum job. I graduated in 2011 from UIS. Two months later, I was the assistant director and curator at the Lincoln Heritage Museum. Wow. Um, and when I first started, uh, the director at the time, Ron Keller, um, I think it was like the third conversation we had, he said, we're designing a brand new museum. What are your thoughts? As a graduate student, you're always told, most of the time you're going to work for museums that are already developed. They already have their exhibits in place. You're just going to be maintaining them. Um, wow. So when I heard that phrase, I was just like, oh my goodness, I, what did I get myself into? Um, so I was given the opportunity to work with 
Daniel Weinberg and a number of other Lincoln scholars, including Ron, to tell the story of Abraham Lincoln in a first person narrative uh, and interactive personal experience that really to this day, you can't find anywhere else. Right. Um, and so working at the Lincoln Heritage Museum, I was able to be a film director at times, a voice coach for people who were trying to uh, make that connection to the past um, through Lincoln's friends and some of the people who disliked him. Mm -hmm. um, but in the midst of all that, I was able to tell the story that got me started on my Lincoln journey to begin with, which was the community that surrounded Lincoln. Uh. Telling the story from their point of view and uh, hearing them talk about their friend, Abraham Lincoln. And to me, that's what the whole museum is about, is getting right. to know the people who knew him on a personal level. And then you, too, at the end of the tour, feel like he's a close friend of yours um, based on what you hear about him. Right. Um, so working there, I had the opportunity to develop educational programs. Uh, I became a certified interpretive trainer, which means I can train people throughout the United States on how to be living history interpreters. Uh, so tell stories, uh, give guided tours through museums, historic sites. Um, in the midst of that, um, I became Mary Lincoln uh, from the 1840s. That's been very interesting. So I've been able to portray her a few times. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, big shoes to fill. Uh, and then uh, one, of, one of the most fun things I've been able to do there was to be able to go through the 50,000 item collection they have, organize it, catalog it, conserve it, um, and to this day, one of my favorite projects we worked on uh, was a small group of Civil War letters from Henry Hawes and his family members. And just to go through and read about their experiences and get the back and forth. It's, I've had a number of wonderful experiences there. Um, and I, I hope to, to continue to help them and encourage them to grow and flourish because they are a must-see museum here in Central Illinois. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I certainly certainly agree with that. Um, in, in a broader sense, your work at the Lincoln Heritage Museum and now your work with the University of Illinois involves teaching history. What do you think about the state of American hi uh, history teaching and, and where it's going? And do you have any um, suggestions or tips or insight from your own experiences that, that might help others that are in that, that same role? Well, I am, I am concerned, like most historians, um, I'm concerned about the, all the humanities for the most part. Um, over the years, humanities have kind of been pushed to the back uh, to make room for English, science, math, which is very important. Uh, but the humanities allow us to gain a better understanding of people, uh, of our shared past that we have, uh, both good and bad, and American history allows us to see why we have uh, a number of societal issues, but also um, why certain uh, projects continue to exist and why they're important uh, and why it's important to remember them so then they don't get lost 
um, to future generations. So I think right now in society, it's a time to bring back the humanities. It's a time to bring back uh, U.S. history. And it's a time for us to get excited about the good things in our past. Um, just like the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, um, the Declaration of Independence, which we're celebrating this weekend um, with our creation as a country. Uh, most Americans, sadly, don't know the whole Declaration of Independence. It used to be, um, at least in my dad's generation, they were supposed to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Mm. Now we're lucky if they know the first phrase of it. Right. So I, I think that we as historians and teachers uh, need to find ways to incorporate history in some form or fashion into our curriculum. Mm -hmm. And in looking at new educational initiatives, history has been pushed out for the most part, and it's been focused on social studies, um, which is important too. Right. But history can be used across all different platforms. It can be used in science. It can be used in math, especially geometry. I mean, Lincoln was a surveyor. He had to use geometry and algebra in order to do his job. Yeah. Um, and so you have that, but then you also have English. And in English, you study the written word. Uh, and Lincoln was a wordsmith. He was very good at composing lines that tug at the heartstrings, but also get to the heart of the matter. Um, and I think that Lincoln can be used across all spectrums. But more than just Lincoln, history needs to be taught. Uh, because Lincoln saw that when he became president, uh, and he learned all about it while living in Illinois. Um, so I think my suggestion to uh, teachers out there is make history more enjoyable right. by involving historians through podcasts, just like the ones that you're putting together, Josh, um, podcasts, Zooms, uh, there is so much technology that we can utilize to reach students, um, but also, I mean, take your students to the museums, uh -huh. to the historic sites, and explain. Um, students, a lot of times, are kinesthetic learners, which means they have to see, touch, um, hear. They have to use majority of their senses uh, in order for it to sink in, and so I always... Um, and I'm always inspired by the teachers who incorporate any type of museum, historic site, monument tours uh, into their curriculum because those students are going to remember that. Right. Um, and the more we can involve our historic institutions, the better um, because that's what our students are craving. Right. Right. And I, well, that's an excellent uh, perspective and an excellent point on teaching history to the next generation. There are as you know, many associations that um, exist to support various aspects of history that uh, are independent from museums, but maybe support them. Um, we're both uh, involved with the Abraham Lincoln Association as an example. How can these history-focused organizations, um, maybe genealogy associations, um, uh, 
whatever they might be that are in some way, shape or form brought groups together to support history, how can they appeal to a younger generation? I think you've touched upon some examples, but um, you know, we're both, I think, millennials. And so that, that group is, gets quite a lot of attention nowadays as well. How, how can these associations, these history groups really take the next step forward um, to ensure they survive? Well, um, I think a big part is working with your university. Um, that's the biggest thing is connecting with a academic institution because that's where majority of the young people who are genuinely mm -hmm. interested will go. Yeah. Um, and so what my job is in the Sangamon experience, which ties over into Lincoln studies as well, um, is with these students, they would like to meet these people one-on-one -on -one and get to know them, get to know the community, and initially find opportunities there. Um, so in the Sangamon experience spectrum, um, I'm going to be uniting all of our community groups together. And my hope is to have students team up with each community and help them grow and meet the needs of the next generation in hopes that their membership will grow due to the interest of the students who invested in them. Um, students, I believe, want to feel like their community supports them and are invested in their future. And in order to do that, um, communities have to step forward uh, with these genealogical and historical groups and invest in them. Um, so for example, um, the ALA and their memberships um, are reaching young people through trying to encourage them to write for the newsletter, um, to encourage them to write for the journal. Uh, that way they can develop the skills that they need to be a published historian um, and future Lincoln scholar. And that is just one aspect. Another is if genealogical groups end up uh, supporting the education of these students financially. And I know that's always really hard because these small groups always have an issue with funding. Mm -hmm. um, so any way that you can be involved in the lives of students, either by helping them with their, with their work but, or uh, spending some time raising funds to help support them financially, that's another aspect. Um, but even just having a luncheon and having the students come and meet and do a meet and greet, uh, just so that they know you exist. Because a lot of these students don't know that these smaller institutions are around and what they do. Great point. That's a great point. Well, we'd like to end these podcasts um, with asking guests to share their favorite um, Abraham Lincoln anecdote or story. And so I want to give that opportunity to you too and see if you have one and if there's one you'd like to share for the listeners and viewers. Um, so most of my stories um, that I love about Lincoln involve his kids. Uh -huh. um, I'm, a, I'm a mom of two. And so uh, <laughs> kids to me always lighten the mood. And I feel like the Lincoln boys tend to get a bad rep every once in a while. Um, but people fail to see that Lincoln actually encouraged them to be a bit mischievous. <laughs> um, but he also encouraged them to be truthful. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite Lincoln stories uh, was in the White House when Willie uh, passed away. Tad and President Lincoln formed a bond uh, after that because they were both mourning the loss of Willie. 
Um, and so Tad was always known uh, to break in on cabinet meetings. Uh, he would run in and um, he would have a secret knock for his dad at the door. <laughs> um, there are times where he would come in and he would just sit on President Lincoln's lap in the midst of a cabinet meeting, maybe talking about one of the battles that is about to take place. Um, so their relationship to me, any story uh, involving the two of them is always golden. But I, I'll cut it down because I know I tend to talk way too much. No, but um, this story is about Jack the doll and his many deaths. So, Tad and Willie had a doll, and his name was Jack. He was a zouave, which means he was one of the um, many uh, soldiers that wore, like, we would almost call them hammer time pants, for those of us who are part of the millennial generation. Um, they were bright red. He wore it looked like a Shriner type hat. Uh, he had a little bit, little vest on. Uh -huh. And Jack always got in trouble, always. Um, and Willie and Tad loved to dress up as soldiers, um, which was not uncommon because there was a lot of soldiers who were camped out on the White House lawn. Uh -huh. um, and they would meet soldiers every day. Um, William Seward actually had a, uh, soldier's uniform tailored just for Tad Lincoln. Uh, some of the younger boys would come around and take part and go through drills um, with them. But Jack the doll, he was not a very good soldier, according to Willie and Tad. There have been times where Jack would fall asleep on, uh, on duty, and so he would be court-martialed, mm -hmm. and he would be sentenced to die. And he died quite a bit, um, and he would always be buried in the White House garden. Now, for those who are master gardeners or love a manicured lawn, this is horrible because the boys were digging up the flower beds that the gardener spent lots of time and energy on. And this got the boys in trouble because the gardener went straight to President Lincoln and complained, the boys are ruining my flower beds. So Jack, again, uh, got in trouble because he decided to run away from the army. He was going to desert. And he was in the process of being um, court-martialed when President Lincoln calls Tad and Willie into his office. And Mr. Lincoln sits down with his boys and asks them, you know, what, what has Jack done now? They explain that, you know, Jack is a horrible soldier. He's been running away from battle and he um, is going to be sentenced to death. Well, what does Lincoln do? He thinks. And he turns to his boys and tells him that he's going to pardon Jack the doll. And so he ends up saving Jack's life by supposedly writing a pardon. <laughs> So to me, that shows a side of Lincoln that um, is, is admiring because it shows that even though he was a man with extreme power within the federal government, um, who was commander in chief 
who spent hours looking over battle maneuvers, trying to, to orchestrate his way around, uh, trying to free a people in bondage. And in the meantime, dealing with a set of cabinet members who don't agree on anything. And he is bowed down with the grief and the loss of the soldiers who have lost their lives. But he takes the time, just like all parents do, mm -hmm. he takes the time to sit, listen to his boys, help them with their problems, but also relate to them in a childlike manner. Mm. To connect with them, spend time with them, and get to know them as individuals. And I think that is a lesson that we don't really hear about with Abraham Lincoln. Yes, he was a great emancipator. He was a great leader. He was a good friend to many. He was also a father who cared and loved and devoted himself to his boys. Given he didn't realize that until after Eddie passed away, their second son, but the relationship he has with Tad and Willie is something that I think uh, we, have, we as historians tend to overlook a lot, um, but it shows a tender side of Lincoln um, that doesn't often get examined. That um, really touching, and that's a great story. And I, yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's so true, and I think it ties in well with what you said earlier about um, you really have to get to know Lincoln, and that's part of the um, mission of the center, and I think how Michael goes about his work, and it sounds like I think you do as well in terms of um, exploring and getting to know Lincoln is getting to know his personality, um, and that's mm -hmm. certainly one that, as you say, gets overlooked a lot. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, I guess I want to uh, thank you again, Anne, for your time, but, but just remind our listeners and, and viewers, depending on how you're um, taking this in, that if you can get out to Springfield, Illinois, please do. Um, obviously, the um, Presidential Library and Museum is there, but um, the, uh, the new Sangamon experience, which um, Anne heads up, um, as well as the Center for Lincoln Studies are two uh, great stops that, that maybe you should think about including when you visit. Um, so. Well, and Josh, can I let your listeners in on some really exciting news? Please do. So uh, the Center for Lincoln Studies uh, has been a long work in progress, and we will actually be opening our doors February 12th of 2021. Wonderful. Um, so keep a lookout on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages, uh, because we will be updating you on that. Um, in addition to that, we are uh, going to be working with the Abraham Lincoln Association um, to highlight Lincoln's birthday and make it a memorable one. Wonderful, wonderful. That's definitely going to be a big event in the Lincoln world um, and really the history world in general. So yeah, we'll definitely be sure to keep our eye out and um, see how we can um, um, bring attention to that and maybe take advantage of some of the guests that I'm sure will be part of that as part of this, this podcast as well. So, well, thanks again, Anne, and uh, we appreciate you taking part in the Lincoln Log podcast. Oh, it's been a great pleasure and it's always fun to team up with our, our neighboring state of Indiana. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show.